Well, happy Easter, Vista. It is great to see you. Thank you for being here uh, to worship with us um, and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Um, Austin's already mentioned this, but again, thanks for being here, especially just to help make room for other people at other service times. Man, we are, we are grateful, grateful for you guys. Whether this is your first time with us or you've been worshiping with us for a while, we're always glad to see you, always glad to worship our risen King together. If you have your Bibles uh, this evening, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Uh, throughout our Easter series, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, we, last week we looked at, uh, on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry uh, through um, the Gospel of Mark. And then for Good Friday, all of our readings were out of the Gospel of Mark. And so this year for Easter, we are in the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, who's a pastor this week, and he said, you know, on Easter, I always feel this pressure to like really preach like my best sermon, you know. And uh, he said, you know, you're always going to have a lot of people, a lot of visitors, but everyone knows what you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about the resurrection. And so he just was talking about how there's always this pressure to really make it super good on Easter. And we just kind of talked a little bit back and forth. And, and I said, yeah, but here's the thing. Like the resurrection story doesn't need us to embellish it at all, right? Like it's already pretty remarkable. A guy that was dead wasn't dead anymore three days later. Like that's a pretty cool story in and of itself. It doesn't need me to like make it super special or better. It's already super special and better as it is, right? So Mark 16 is where we're going to be and we'll see what Mark tells us beginning in verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now let me take a quick break really quick. All right, I promise we'll get to the rest of the story, right? A little, little side note. A lot of people get, get sort of caught up or distracted, I would say, by some of the discrepancies in the gospel accounts, um, not only of just the life of Jesus, but also in particular the resurrection. There are some discrepancies. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, there are some little differences, okay? Um, for example, in, uh, in John's gospel, he reveals that there was one woman that discovered the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene alone is mentioned in, in John's gospel. All right, then Matthew's gospel, we were in Matthew last year, um, two women are mentioned, Mary Magdalene and the other, the other Mary, the Mary mentioned here. In Mark's gospel, as we just read, there are three women mentioned, the Marys, and then a woman named Salome. And then in Luke's gospel, there appears to be a group of women, okay, uh, mentions the Marys, a lady named Joanna, and then it says the other women, so plural, meaning the three that were mentioned and at least two others. So a group of at least five, okay? Um, there's also some discrepancy. I think it's Luke's gospel that mentions um, two angels. Other gospels mention one angel. And so some people would look at these somewhat surface discrepancies and say, see, um, it's not true. It's a made-up story. They don't have their facts straight. Some people would use that as some sort of justification to not believe the Bible or not believe the resurrection. But, but I agree with, with N.T. Wright. This is a quote. I think we've thrown it up before, but I, it's a really great quote. Here's what he says. Surface discrepancies do not mean that nothing happened. Indeed, they are a very reliable indicator that something remarkable happened so remarkable that the first witnesses were bewildered into telling different stories about it, right? And I would remind you that um, those that wrote the Gospels, they are writing, <clears throat> excuse me, years after the events that, that they're writing about, right? So think about in your own life, the most remarkable thing you've ever seen in your life from years ago, 
okay? Whatever that may be. The most remarkable thing you ever saw years ago. And let's just say that four to five other people saw the same thing or maybe they were at the event or whatever it was. Now, don't you think that if I were to call four to five of you in and say, hey, tell me what happened, I would probably get some different versions of what happened since it happened years ago, okay? And so, in fact, every major event that has ever happened in the history of the world has different accounts of it, right? There are surface discrepancies. And so, I would just say, as a kind of, again, a side note, not to get overly caught up in some of the surface discrepancies because they don't mean nothing happened. They're actually a pretty good indicator that something unbelievable, something remarkable did, in fact, happen, okay? Okay, first two, get back to the story. Here's what it says. And very early on, the first day of the week... When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. I always want to remind you when I read this part of the story that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that the witnesses could see in. Are you with me? In a very real way, Jesus didn't need that stone to be rolled away to rise from death. He didn't need that stone rolled away to get out of the tomb. The stone was rolled away for you and for me, okay? It was rolled away so that you, so the witnesses, so that people could see that indeed Jesus was not in there any longer, okay? Verse five, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Now, I don't know what version of the Bible you particularly are using or you normally read. In almost every version of Scripture, including this one, there is a a footnote, there is some sort of note right in the middle of the page that says, in the earliest manuscripts, they do not include verses 9 through 20 of Matthew 16. So what that means is this. It is almost undebatable at this point that Mark originally ended his gospel at verse 8, what we just read. That, that 9 through 20 were added at some point in early church history, um, but Mark did not write 9 through 20, okay? And there's, you know, debate about, you know, um, it's included in the scriptures and, and all that. We're not going to get to that. I just want to make sure on the same page we understand Mark, as he wrote his gospel, he ended his gospel at verse 8, what we just read, okay? Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if Mark ended his gospel at verse 8, which he most certainly did, That's a rather brief, like abrupt, kind of odd way to end your narrative account of the life of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, isn't that, it's kind of a cliffhanger, right? I mean, think about it. Mark has spent all this time talking and writing about Jesus and all of his works and all of his miracles and all of his interactions, and it's building and it's sort of culminating in this act at the cross where he goes to a cross and he dies on this cross, and then it's all building towards the resurrection, and here's how Mark's big, long gospel ends, right? The ladies show up to the tomb, and Jesus isn't there, and the angel says, go tell his disciples. 
but they were afraid, so they went home. The end, right? Like, that's the end of Mark's gospel, isn't it? Isn't that odd? And I would remind you, Mark's gospel was the first of the gospels written. So we didn't have Matthew, Luke, and John. So we can fill in some gaps, right? Like we read later on that the women went and told the disciples, there's the road to Emmaus, there's all this. We read that and we know that from other gospels kind of putting it all together. But when Mark wrote his gospel, he was the first one. And this is what the church, this is what they're reading. All this about Jesus, the ladies show up, the tomb is empty, the angel says, go tell the disciples, but they don't because they're afraid. End of story, right? It's just a rather odd and abrupt way for the story to end. And so as Austin and I talked about this year's Easter sermon and, and kind of what we wanted to try to unpack, this is what kind of stood out to us. We're in Mark's gospel and it ends so abruptly, like what can we learn from that? What can we learn from the fact that Mark ends his gospel so abruptly? What is he trying to teach us? What is he trying to show us by ending it so so quickly. And so uh, I just wrote down um, a few things that I want to share with you. And our hope is, I know maybe some of you have heard this story over and over and over again. Every Easter, hopefully other times other than Easter, but you've kind of got it like ingrained and, and you, know, uh, you know the story of the resurrection. My hope and my prayer for you is that we could learn a little something and apply something to our lives tonight that Mark would, would leave us with, all right? So the first thing I wrote down, why would Mark end his gospel so abruptly is this that Mark wants to leave us sort of longing for more of Christ. Are you with me? Um, that's what cliffhangers do. They just kind of leave you hanging on a little bit, right? They leave you kind of wanting to know what's next. They leave you questioning and searching and pursuing and longing for even more. The best example I could give you is um, I am a, I'm a dad of boys, okay? Which means I have seen all of the Avengers movies a lot. Anybody else? You see the Avengers movies, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they, they've dominated the big screen for like a decade now. And because and I have boys, we've seen a lot of the Avengers movies, all right? Now, um, in this illustration, I'm going I'm to give, give away an ending. So spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen them yet, they've been out for years. So it's kind of on you, right? Like it's kind of your fault, right? But the last two of the Avengers movies was Infinity War and then Endgame, Okay. In Infinity War, which again, if you're not an Avengers person, you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but basically the movie ends very abruptly. It's like the bad guy named Thanos like snaps his fingers and half of like the population of the world just disappears, just goes away. And that's the end of the movie, right? And, and, and like the, all the Avengers feel like failures and they're all, you know, it's just like this really random, weird, abrupt ending. And that's how the movie ends. And it causes all the Avengers fans to go, there's got to be something coming. There's, there's another one coming, right? There's going to be more, right? And it causes them to sort of, they're on the edge of their seat and they're kind of leaning in and they can't wait for that next movie to come out to finish the story, right? And then history tells us that's exactly what happens. Endgame comes out and to date, it is the second highest grossing movie of all time. The second highest grossing movie of all time because everybody was left with a cliffhanger and they pursued, they wanted to know more and they couldn't wait for more. I think in some regard, this is what Mark has in mind. Mark could have ended his gospel any way he wanted. He could have gone on and told more of what happened. Most, most uh, scholars believe that Mark got his information from Peter. Peter was there, like, like Peter knows everything after this point, but Mark chose to end his gospel at verse eight because I think on some level, he wants us to kind of lean in a little bit. 
He wants us to maybe, maybe search and pursue and, and wonder and question and dare I say, maybe even struggle a little bit with the person and the work of Christ. Because here's what happens. Like, when we struggle, when we wrestle, when we question, when we wonder, when we sort of lean in, listen, that's when our faith really begins to grow, doesn't it? Like, I know a lot of us would love for everything to be neat and tidy and all the loose ends are all kind of tied up and, and we know what happens and we know the end of the story and we, everything's in its neat little place, but let's be honest, that's not how life works and it's not how faith works either. And so sometimes we need to, we need to wrestle, we need to struggle, we need to lean in, we need to question, we need to long for more of Christ. And I think that's what Mark has in mind. Mark wants his readers to go, oh, I want to hear it. I want, I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know what happens next. I want to search for more of Christ. Mark wants to leave us longing for more of Jesus. The second thing I wrote down, why would Mark end it so abruptly in this way? Why would he include what he includes? Mark wants us to know that our failures are not fatal. Our failures are not fatal. Look at this in verse 7. This was interesting. The angel tells the women, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Now, last I checked, wasn't Peter one of the disciples, right? So why does the angel single out Peter? Why does the angel say, go tell all the disciples and Peter, <laughs> right? I mean, Peter is like, he's kind of known as the leader of all the disciples, right? Bold Peter, the man that said, I will never deny you. I will go to the grave with you. I will die with you if I have to. I will never deny you. The guy that got out of the boat and walked on water, the guy that was with Jesus for all the miracles, he's kind of the leader, the outspoken leader of all the disciples. Well, where did we last see Peter in the story? Remember? I'll remind you over in chapter 14, beginning in verse 66. This is the last time we see Peter in the narrative of the life of Christ. Jesus has been arrested. And it says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about, right? And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. That's the last time we saw Peter in the story, right? Peter was a failure. He was a failure. Peter thought of himself as a failure. Peter wasn't sure that Christ would forgive him, that Christ would allow him in the group anymore. Peter wasn't sure he could be used by God anymore. Anybody ever feel like that? Yeah? I don't know about you. Sometimes I feel like a failure. I made a lot of mistakes, do a lot of things wrong. Sometimes wonder, can God still really use me? 
This is the good news of the gospel, the good news of resurrection. I think that the angel singles out Peter to show Peter that his failure was not final, that God was not done using Peter, and history goes on to show us that he was not. Man, Peter is reinstated, Peter is forgiven, Peter is used in a powerful way in the history of the church. Peter galvanizes the disciples and leads the church. And listen, it's this really great reminder that despite the failures and the problems and the struggles and the sin in our life, God's not kicking us out of the group, right? Like God forgives us and he loves us and he uses us in spite of us. That's the good news of the gospel. That your failures, maybe you walked in here tonight and you got a lot of failures and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, a lot of sin, and maybe you feel like a failure. I want you to hear that one of the great stories of the resurrection is that your failures are not fatal, that God's not done with you yet. God's not done with you yet. One other thing that I wrote down about why Mark would end his gospel this way so abruptly is I think Mark wants to show us or might maybe remind us that Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. Listen, again, Mark could have ended his gospel any way he wanted. And again, we can fill in some gaps from other gospels, but Mark chose to end it with, you know, everybody goes home. That he chose to end it with none of the followers were really faithful, right? Like at this point in the story, all of the followers of Jesus kind of mess up. They kind of blow it. They, they, they all, man, like the disciples, they're nowhere to be found at his crucifixion. They've all deserted him. We just read about Peter who said, I will never deny you. Well, he denied him three times. And then we read about the ladies who, you know, at least they were at the crucifixion and they're going back to anoint the body. And so they seem more faithful than the disciples, right? But then the angel just said, hey, I've got a job for you to do. Go tell everybody that he's not here. And again, Mark ends it with, they were afraid, so they went home. Everybody in the story, all of the followers of Jesus in the story, lacked some faith and courage, and they all just, uh, man, they all just kind of messed up. And yet, here's what I want to remind you. You and I are still here, right? Like here we are as the church. The church has continued to flourish. The gospel has continued to go forward. Despite all of the attempts throughout history from kings and rulers and armies and, and, and individuals to stop the spread of the gospel and to stop the church, it has done nothing but grow and flourish, which reminds me that this good news, right, this gospel, it's not about how good you and I are, but about how good he is. It's not about how faithful we can be, but about how faithful God has already been to us. God's will is going to be accomplished. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. And listen, God doesn't need you and me to do that but he chooses to use us. He wants to use us. He wants to work in and through us. That's the, that's the beauty of the story. Mark wants to show us that it's not a person that's the hero of the story. The church isn't here because Peter was super faithful. The church isn't here because the women uh, went and told everybody that they saw Jesus. The church isn't here because the disciples were so good at teaching the Bible. No, the church is here throughout history because God is good and Jesus accomplishes, he is the hero of the story, right? Mark wants to make sure that Jesus is the hero of the story. You might say it this way, that Christianity is not, it's not for heroes. Christianity is really not for heroes, but rather it's for those that realize they're not. As I read the end of Mark's gospel, I'm reminded of something Mark wrote about early in his gospel in chapter two. In chapter two, Jesus is beginning to call his disciples. And 
one of the guys that he calls, one of the guys he chooses to be in the 12 is a guy named Matthew, Levi. Some of your versions say Levi. He was a tax collector, which meant nobody liked him, right? He didn't have a lot of friends, or at least not the right kind of friends. Uh, Nobody liked tax collectors. They were viewed as sellouts. And so Jesus, of all the people he could have called, he walks up to Matthew one day, a, a tax collector, and says, follow me. And the Bible says that Matthew leaves his tax booth and begins to follow Jesus. He just leaves it there, follows Jesus. Now, in the same story of Jesus calling Matthew, in the same text, it says later, they were at Matthew's house and Jesus was reclining at the table with all of Matthew's low-life friends, right? Like Matthew basically threw a party and invited all of his low-life friends. Again, we're talking, it says tax collectors and sinners, and the Bible uses that word. When, it, when someone was labeled as a sinner in society, we're talking the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel kind of people, okay? And Matthew calls all of his friends over and Jesus is hanging out with them. He says they're reclining at the table. He's having a meal with them and he's just shooting the breeze and talking and, and the religious leaders see Jesus hanging out with the wrong kind of people and, and they can't believe it. They literally ask some of his other followers, why is he eating and drinking with those people? And Jesus overhears them he overhears them and he says, he says, hey, it's the people that are well, they don't, they don't need a physician. They don't need a doctor. But it's, but it's those that are sick that need a doctor. And he says, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the heroes or those that think they're heroes. I came for the lost and the hurting and the broken, right? So Mark's whole message here is that Christianity is not for a bunch of spiritual superheroes. But Christianity is for those that realize they're not. Listen, church, that is the beginning of the gospel. The gospel starts with you and me recognizing our need for a savior, recognizing that you and I cannot be good enough, we can't measure up, that we need a savior. You can't get someone saved before they understand that they're lost, right? And so this is Mark's whole point, is that you and I are sinners and we can't fix ourselves. And that's why Jesus came and Jesus goes to a cross and he gives up his life on a cross in our place for our sin. He pays for our sin through his death. And then again, the great story of the resurrection is that three days later he gets up and he walks out of the grave conquering Satan's sin and death once and for all. If you're here tonight and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, in a moment I'm gonna pray. Jordan and the band are gonna come back out And I would invite you, there's gonna be some people in the back, be happy to talk with you, pray with you about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ. And others of you, you know, you've made that decision. You believe in in the finished work of Christ. I just wanna remind you that your failure is not final and that Jesus is the hero of the story. It's not about you. It's all about him, right? Let's pray together. Father, we are unbelievably grateful for the cross and the fact that you gave up your life on the cross for us. And Jesus, we are grateful that you did not stay in that tomb, that you got up and you walked out of that tomb. We're grateful, Jesus, that you conquered Satan's sin and death once and for all. God, we're grateful today that our failures, of which there are many, uh, God, they are not fatal and you show us that every single day. I pray that you'd remind us that you still wanna use us that you use um, broken people all the time. 
I pray, Father, you would remind us that you are the hero of the story, God. For some of us that have been in church a long time, sometimes there is a tendency to think that on some level it's about about me or about some giftedness that is in me and something I have to do. And if if I don't, I'm going to let people down. But God, I I just pray you'd remind us that, that you're the hero of the story, that you are faithful even when we are not, that your mission and your purpose will be accomplished. And so God, tonight for that, we just say thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.